Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hello and welcome to the show. This is Stephen Mo. Today we're going to be speaking with Dr. James Austin from the Harvard Business School. And he's also going to tell us about his early career in the Peace Corps in the 1960s. Here's an excerpt from that interview. In the end, you know, if you, if you have a loving family and uh, you see that values, uh, you know, have, have been passed on and mm. those are appreciated and uh, uh, that that, uh, that bond is great, well, maybe in the most important role that one has, uh, if you end up uh, getting that sort of right, uh, maybe that's the, the best bottom line. Now in the next episode, we're gonna be speaking with Elena Casolari, who's the co-founder and executive president of Opus Impact Fund, which is the first Italian investment vehicle targeting early stage social enterprises in East Africa and India. And she has an amazing perspective on impact funds and the roles they can play in encouraging social enterprises. If you don't want to miss out on that and other upcoming episodes, then hit subscribe. Now let's get straight into that interview with James. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. James Austin onto the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Stephen. And I'm hoping that you can um, introduce your title because I was worried that I wouldn't be able to remember it all. So I am a uh, emeritus professor from the Harvard Business School. Uh, it's a chaired uh, uh, professorship, so has a long name, but uh, but I, that's that's where I have uh, spent 35 years. And the amazing thing about this conversation is that in the summer of 1964, uh, you met my father. Indeed. And so this conversation I've been looking forward to for literally months because I know quite a lot about my father, but. It's an amazing thing to meet someone who knew him when he was a young man. Before we talk about that experience in that summer of 1964 and what you were doing, do you mind telling us a bit about your own background and where you're from? So I was uh, born in the Midwest of the United States uh, and uh, grew up there as a young man and uh, studied there. Uh, went to community college and then to the University of Michigan and uh, uh, when in high school I uh, met my future wife uh, and so we were one of those very rare these days uh, high school sweethearts that mm. ended up getting married and here we are after 53 years uh, still together so uh, my life journey has really been a a journey, journey together. Mm, that's wonderful. And where you grew up was which city was it, or which area? So this was uh, in a town called Flint, Michigan, which, uh, growing up, was really a General Motors automobile production uh, city. So uh, a vibrant economy, uh, and because of that, uh, there was also a wonderful community investment, if you will, lots of opportunities for, for children and the community at large. Uh, so it was a terrific place to, uh, to grow up. 
they created there one of the very first uh, community colleges, junior colleges they called them then. Uh, it's a two-year program where one could either go to get a technical degree, an associate's degree, or you could go there for a couple of years and then transfer down to a, on to another full four-year four-year college or mm-hmm. university, which is which is what I do. I, I, I did that at that point. I moved moved from there down to uh, University of Michigan, and uh, and that's where I graduated from. Right. And what were you studying at the university? Uh, you know, it was liberal arts at the community college, and and then I went into their their business school for mm-hmm. the for the second two years. So I graduated with a bachelor in business administration. Mm. And was that something that you'd always wanted to do to get into that area? Or how did it um, become a focus for you? You know, my father was uh, a very small businessman. Uh, He'd worked as a foreman in a factory and then ultimately uh, ended up owning the factory. It uh, was a factory that uh, manufactured fishing nets. So uh, Mm. Very relevant uh, to uh, that wonderful activity here in New Zealand. Uh, and uh, so perhaps there was some some influence. Here was a little small entrepreneur and running a business. So mm. perhaps so there was some you'd influence had, there. You'd kind of seen your father in business and yeah. might have been an influence there. I think maybe. Mm. What was it that shaped your decision in that sort of summer of 1964 that we were talking about. Well, as as I mentioned, uh, Kathy and I had uh, really been together for for quite a while as as high school sweethearts, and that continued uh, throughout college, even though she went to a different college. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we got married upon uh, graduating, uh, each of us from our respective universities. But before that, she was particularly uh, socially oriented uh, and uh, I think we were both influenced by by President Kennedy and mm-hmm. uh, his creation of the Peace Corps and so this was in the early days and it seemed uh, it resonated with us mm-hmm. uh, trying to uh, to be helpful and, and to do uh, do some good in the world and uh, we had not been world travelers at all uh, nonetheless uh, that seemed like a a path that we decided we we wanted to follow, and so I think those were the motivating factors mm. that led us to to uh, you know to apply and get accepted into into the Peace Corps. Mm. Uh, and just for those people, because my father was the same, he applied and was accepted and was in the same um, the same group, I think, as yes, you. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, can you just explain a little bit? Because some people may not be familiar with the Peace Corps. Can you just explain a little bit about it? So the idea of the Peace Corps that uh, President Kennedy had uh, was that you could mobilize uh, the youth of America, basically college graduates, uh, highly motivated uh, with some set of skills uh, that they could go to other parts of the world and engage with communities and organizations that... uh, might uh, welcome and and need some some assistance of young uh, young folks with some with some modest skills uh, and do some good and uh, it was an idea of of creating uh, alliances of, of friendship and and help and and service throughout the, the world so it was a a rather unique 
act uh, for, uh, if you will, foreign diplomacy uh, of, of putting the a step forward uh, from from the United States uh, and a and a and a positive uh, contribution, hopefully. Mm. And it, had it been running for a few years before you joined? We were very early on, so uh, we were in the earliest. Uh, uh, groups that were recruited into into the Peace Corps, uh, and uh, so in that sense, uh, I suspect we were we were pioneers. They, we were very young and and tried to do our best. Uh, uh, looking back uh, on that, uh, we probably did some good, uh, but I think. Uh, the bigger impact really was what living abroad and at the very grassroots level interacting with with uh, people from another country, uh, what that impact had on us. It, it changed our worldview. Uh, you became much more open and appreciative of different cultures, uh, very different needs and uh, and the warmth and the uh, wonderful friendships that one could develop across uh, across cultures uh, you appreciated uh, the distinctive skills and talents and cultures of of other countries and that sort of broadened view in a very fundamental sense uh, shaped the whole rest of our life trajectory. Mm. The choices that we made subsequently uh, uh, can be traced back to, uh, to that, that core experience that mm. we had. It's an amazing thing because to be so young and to be given that experience to learn new language, to be sent to different parts of the world, I think you're right. I, I know from my father, it definitely affected his life course. Um, and I guess the, the point that you're making is that there was some good that was done by the volunteers where they went, and there was good impact. But perhaps the biggest impact was on the individuals who, who went themselves. I think so. And, and then in their life mm. journeys subsequently, decisions that they made, activities that they did, oftentimes, in fact, would be engaging around the world with different mm. cultures. And, uh, uh, and, and probably those actions subsequently... Uh, with greater skills and resources, uh, perhaps did even more mm. more benefit uh, than those initial two years. Uh, so mm. if you look at it as sort of a, a life stream uh, of engagement, uh, then I think that that just increasingly uh, deepened and, and, and broadened uh, and, and probably generated a bit more value along mm. the way for for folks. Mm. Oh, that's good. It's 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 good to hear uh, sort of that perspective looking back on on that time. And just take us in in terms of you just gotten married and you said a week later you went into this training program. Not oh. the ideal way to spend your honeymoon <laughs> in a dormitory being the University of Notre Dame, uh, <laughs> you know, in intensive language training and cultural immersion. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but nonetheless, uh, certainly... It was an experience. <laughs> and, and must have been bonding in some ways because, uh, you know, here we are more than five decades later still together. So, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, but nonetheless, it was, uh, it was a, 
very intensive and very useful training. Mm. So what did that training involve? You mentioned language. You did know, you, the, did the you core, the most important part of it was the language mm. to uh, give one a running start on the language. Right. In our case, we had been assigned to Chile, uh, and so uh, it was trying to help us at least have some speaking ability by the time mm. we arrived in country a few months later. Mm. And, uh, and how uh, were there other groups assigned to different countries? Is that how it was yes, all? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You, you were assigned to different countries, uh, so often how, based on the needs of, of uh, different countries and mm. what your skills were. So how many were in that group that went to Chile? So there were, uh, I guess we were about... Uh, 60 or so, but there was another group training with us that went to Uruguay and, mm-hmm. and, and Venezuela, and, uh, um, but most of us were going, going to uh, Chile. And so it was a, also a very bonding experience mm. with your fellow Peace Corps volunteers, very intense uh, days and training, and, uh, and those are bonds that, uh, in fact, remain mm. lifelong. Mm. Uh, we still remain in touch with and interact with our, our fellow Peace Corps volunteers. Well, I know the reason that we got in touch is that my father forwarded something that I'd done about social Indeed. enterprises. Indeed. And he forwarded it, and you wrote back and said, oh, this is this is an area that I'm involved in now. So I was delighted that uh, <laughs> Mo had, you know, Big Norm Mo had been so productive to create a, a wonderful offspring who was involved in <laughs> this uh, uh, field, which in many ways I think uh, is just another reflection of the core values that yeah. emerge from his Peace Corps experience. Yeah. So. Well, for me, it's fascinating to just think about my own journey and how did I get where I am and realize that actually my parents were a huge influence on me. And when you come back to it, the summer of 1964, my dad was there with you learning Spanish right. about to go to Chile. Yes, indeed. So it's it's really good. So had you did you have some language ability, some Spanish language before you started that? I, or? Had, I had zero Spanish uh, language beforehand. Uh, I had taken French uh, in, in high school and a little bit in college. Uh, and the biggest complaint and frustration of my Spanish teachers uh, back at Notre Dame in training was that I kept trying to speak Spanish with a French accent, so they had to eradicate uh, that. But uh, uh, it, was a, it was a very innovative way to learn a new language. We saw no written Spanish. Mm. It was all verbal and tapes and, and pictures and so forth. So the goal was to get you to be able to speak. That was what was most right. important. The, the, so it know, wasn't so much about the grammar and the past tense and the future tense and all that. It was being able to say, you know, yo me amo James or, you know, something that was actually... Mucho gusto, Stephen. Yeah. Que bueno. Yeah. You know, so you, you, get to, you get to speak, which was the, the, the real, core skill, yeah. Which I guess, and it makes sense because when you arrive in the country on the ground... That's the critical thing, rather than Absolutely. well, the past tense, the future tense, the you, you, whatever it is. Yeah, you, you you know you learn those even within the context of, of that verbal training of uh, you know what happened yesterday, mm. and, and by the context of what you're saying and you're repeating. Well, okay, well that's past tense, and so, but we never saw any any written sort of thing about grammar rules or nothing. It was a it yeah. was a fascinating uh, immersion. Yeah, and and were you what were your feelings about going to Chile? Was it something that, did you know anything about that country beforehand, or was it just you were given a, a letter that said, 
this is where you're going? Did you yes, have some in input fact, on it? Or? Well, <laughs> <laughs> they say, where would you like to go in your application? Right. And, you know, we said, well, <coughs> we think first our first choice would be Africa because the need just seems so, so mm. great there. Mm. Second was Asia because that was just sort of intriguing and so forth. And, well, third would be Latin America. So we ended up in Chile. Right. So <laughs> did our preference have anything to do with where we were sent? No, it was you were sent where they needed uh, you to be. And uh, mm. and so we ended up in Latin America. And, and, uh, and in fact, the whole rest of our, our professional lives have... Uh, uh, have been deeply involved in Latin America, but also Asia and Africa uh, subsequently. Because yeah. uh, you mentioned that you, now you're living in Mexico and you've been there for yeah. a couple decades, it sounds like. Yeah, so subsequent to uh, my retiring, and Kathy did the same from, from her uh, profession. Uh, she had also gotten her doctorate from Harvard and then, and then went into international development mm. uh, uh, and... Uh, Ended up moving to a little village uh, in southern Mexico, a uh, small village, uh, not, not unlike where we had lived in, in Chile. So mm. in some ways it was almost going full circle, uh, mm. life's uh, journey. Almost like an echo of that first yeah. experience. And I want to get to that, what, what you're doing now and where you're living now, but why don't we park that for a second because I'm really interested in where you did go when you went to Chile. So you finished yes. your training. Mm-hmm. You've had a couple months of intensive Spanish language immersion mm-hmm. culture. Do you have any other memories of that time and the group and anything, well, in particular with my father and um, what well, it was? You know, when we were training, uh, that was we were all together and you do language together and you have language tables together and you do athletics together. And so we were all very much interacting uh, with Norm and everybody else. And Norm is a very tall, strong, athletic uh, chap. And so he always excelled in, in uh, many of our activities. Uh, although I was small and but a very good runner. So, You're fast, uh, right? I was fast. <laughs> so I, I could outrun everybody. But, uh, but in any case... Uh, you you got to know each other uh, yeah. very very deeply, uh, and of course, any shared experience I think that's mm. intense mm. Uh, has a potentially a bonding uh, effect, and that certainly did. Uh, and so we got to know each other very well during training. But as soon as we got to Chile, this is a very long country, mm. narrow and long, and we were dispersed. The whole length of Chile. And so Norm is off dealing with fish on one end of the country, and we were off in the middle north. Uh, and right. Up in, uh, in Where were you? Near Antofagasta? Well, we no, uh, we were not that like far. in the middle north. Okay. Uh, so first we spent a year in on a coastal town of La Serena in Coquimbo, a port town, and a, mm. uh, kind of a traditional town. And then the second year, we, in fact, went way up into the interior, into the mm. Andes, and uh, worked with co-ops uh, in, a, in a little little tiny village uh, up there. They were mostly grape growers and, uh, and helped uh, work, work with that cooperative up there. Mm. And what, what were some of the highlights or the memories that you have at that time? You know, they, they, it, it was quite interesting in that our, we had the unique uh, benefit of having one year in the city and one year in the country. Right. And that was sort of a contrast. Uh, so the city was, I mean, it's a town, really. It's a very small, small city. 
but it was an urban setting. And, and, you know, one of the memories that we had there, we helped them set up a, we were dealing with uh, credit and loan co-ops, but also consumer co-ops. And uh, one of the things that we helped them with was to set up an actually a radio program, broadcasting about cooperatives and the benefits and, and, uh, and so we actually had to do some of the some of the broadcasting with our modest uh, Spanish. Uh, those poor Chileans were suffering, I'm sure, from listening <laughs> to us. Uh, uh, but in the interior, uh, that's a very different lifestyle. You know, we're in a village where the generator, because there was no electricity, the generator for the town, uh, Pueblito, really, because a very very sp- small village would go off at 8. Mm. So, you know, uh, the lights would go out and everybody went off to bed. And there's a farming community, so you get up early and you go to bed, you know, early. Uh, and uh, But it, uh, it, was, it was wonderful working uh, with the people there. Uh, there was a, a Catholic priest who was a very dedicated, community-oriented uh, worker, and he kind of took us under his wing and helped us along too. And, uh, and so uh, working with people that were committed uh, to also trying to help, uh, help the village and just uh, the open, open warmth with which the, the people uh, you know, welcomed us and interacted with us. It was really uh, mm. a, a, very, uh, a very moving and enjoyable uh, time. A lot of hard work, long days, but... Uh, and your living quarters were whatever they were. Uh, we were in one little room, and then we had to, uh, and it was a room that the woman who had this little extra building stored her corn. So mm. we were sort of living in a corn storage silo, if you will, uh, for a, a while. And then we moved to a little room next uh, next door. And uh, this may not be a very pleasing sight, but we went next door, and it turned out that the drainage system there was not too good. And so... I went in next door to kind of at night to clean it up, you know, before we moved in and turned on the light and this ghastly sight, the walls were covered with cockroaches. (laughs) 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 Because the sink sort of had never been done correctly. So there was a massive massacre of those uh, (laughs) ancient creatures before we moved in. But uh, so different living conditions, but, uh, you know. And I guess coming from from america this was quite a contrast wasn't it <laughs> indeed it was yeah yeah you've mentioned the word cooperatives a couple of times i know from my father as well he moved to a small fishing village yes. called maywin right. and his focus was basically trying to help fishermen rather than individually selling to someone who right. would then make the profit when they sold the fish to band together as fishermen and say well actually there's 20 of us that we now have a lot more fish to sell and trying to get better prices is is that kind of the the ethos or the 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 thrust of what you guys were doing so it it was very similar only instead of fishermen we were dealing with small farmers right and so it was how can you get them to aggregate their their crops uh, and then get those crops in this case mostly grapes uh, bundled and sent down to santiago and that's great. Well, I want to move on from the Peace Corps now and, and talk about what you've done next. But I did want to mention, because my father met my mother 
in the Peace Corps, <laughs> and um, they they were courting in Santiago because my dad went on staff with Peace Corps for a number of years, and then they ended up in Central America for a while. He, he so it was just not, shows he was not alone. No, <laughs> there were several other members of uh, of our group that right. uh, ended up finding their life partner. Uh, yeah. uh, in Chile, and uh, it just was wonderful. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, you yeah. know that. Um, yeah, I guess that connection there was because they were both similar mindsets, wanting to reach out and, and help other people, and and they're still together there now living right. in Hawaii. So yeah. there you go. Um, so just moving on from there, um, what happened next in terms of you finished up your two years, you went back to the States? We did, uh, but you know, it's you go off and you have this, certainly could be called an adventure, but it certainly was a life-changing experience, but life carries on, so what do you do next? Yeah, and I guess you come back to the country that you were from, a very changed person, because you no longer have the same mindset that you had before you joined, because indeed, indeed. you've lived in the, in the small uh, yeah. villages. and Very different than the kind of constrained uh, uh, life experience you had had before. Mm. So did you have any of that reverse culture shock of, wow, where am I? When you got back, or not really? Yeah, not really. Uh, the question is, what do you do when you come back? Mm. Uh, my my goal was I wanted to go to graduate school. My dilemma was I didn't know exactly in what. No, I I did have two two alternatives. One, get my master's in business administration, continue that that path that I had started in undergraduate, and the other was law school. Hmm. You know, your profession, right? I said, well, you know, what, what should I take? I mean, uh, law, pursuit of justice, that resonated with me. And mm -hmm. uh, business school, I kind of know what that is. And, and I said, how am I going to resolve this? I really didn't have a fixation on one or the other. I said, you know, I'll be very rational about this. I'll take the two graduate entrance exams, one for law school, one for the business school, and whichever the score is higher, comparative advantage. That's if it. If you're better yeah. at this, go there. <laughs> I went into Santiago. You take the test long distance. Results came back. Looked at them. They were exactly the same. Wow. <laughs> Had no help at all. <laughs> and so then it was oh, a question dear. of, well, you know, I've been working with small farmers, and, mm. and one of the critical bottlenecks to their bettering themselves and their families' lives is is how to organize the resources and their operations. And uh, and so I said, well, I know that this is important. Mm. The law, I don't know exactly what it would be. Sure, and so I yeah. opted for that, and I, I applied to the Harvard Business School. It was the only school that, that, I, that I applied to, and there's a reason for that, but uh, uh, and uh, was admitted. And so we came back to the States, and Kathy and I were hired for a few months also like, like Norm, uh, uh, but on a short-term basis to, to help train the next set of volunteers coming to Chile. And so we did that for a few months and then, and then uh, went to Boston and, and, and entered into, into graduate school. And Kathy, mm. uh, who had been trained uh, uh, as an as a elementary education teacher, and she became a teacher for a couple of years and then changed over to... Mm. graduate school also mm. but and you mentioned that you only applied to that one school what what was the reason for that when i was 
at the University of Michigan, the standard pedagogy is you go to a classroom, the professor would lecture, you would take it, you'd come to an exam, you'd kind of regurgitate the, what he said or whatever you read. And, but there were two classes that I had where they didn't do that. It was all discussion-based. Oftentimes the discussion was around what they called a case study. It would be a description of some company and they had a challenge and you had to wrestle it and analyze it and put yourself in the shoes of the managers and and it was a, all the students participating, and that was very challenging and stimulating, uh, you know, intellectually. It wasn't just a given. Uh, and so I knew uh, that I wanted to go where they had that pedagogy. Right. That would be the, the richest learning I could have. And, and Harvard Business School is sort of uh, was the pioneer in that, and that's dominated their, their, the way they taught. And... Uh, and so that was why I applied there. So. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And and so what happened after you'd, you'd been studying there for a while? Um, w- what happened next? So that's a two-year program, very intense uh, and, uh, and wonderful, life-changing, uh, equally transformative in terms of you know, the experience I just had, mm. but uh, this is another one. Uh, my Peace Corps experience set me aside from many of the other folks in the classrooms, uh, and it gave me perspectives that they didn't didn't have. Uh, uh, but it was, uh, you know, there was a modest number of international students there at that time, and so we kind of bonded there. And uh, uh, but as I was graduating. Uh, in the second year, you sort of say, all right, so uh, go out and try to find a job. And, and I did do that, and there were, there were uh, uh, several companies, you know, where there would be offers, uh, one being, in fact, a company that mm. Norm ended up working for for many years. Uh, uh, but, but I had somehow increasingly got oriented towards pursuing the academic side mm. and uh, decided that uh, I wanted to to pursue a doctorate instead of going going out into the into the direct management world and uh, and so I entered the doctoral program uh, at uh, at Harvard uh, and uh, uh, that was a couple of more years of, uh, of study mm. and uh, then I'd finished all my coursework there and what what was your topic or it your was area? Mostly, uh, it was mostly international business and and economic development, uh, with sort of a sub interest in in agribusiness, uh, and uh, received an offer from uh, a management school in Central America, in Cai, which originally had been set up uh, at President Kennedy's request by the Harvard Business School to create and strengthen management in in the Central American region. And uh, so from the very beginning, it was a international school that encompassed uh, and had representatives from all of the Central American countries in Panama uh, and went down to this school. It used the same pedagogy as the Harvard Business School. Mm. It was uh, an offspring in, in one sense. 
And, and so you're able to use your Spanish language there as well? Absolutely. Yeah, so that's great. I'm able to, uh, you know, to go right in and, and mm-hmm. teach, in, teach in Spanish. And, uh, it and became, what, what years are we talking about now? Because so, you've been studying yeah, in the late 1960s, yeah. so this would be 19, probably. Or? 1970. 1970, 1970 right. Yeah. Uh, uh, of course, the late 60s in the U.S. was a very tumultuous period also. Mm. But uh, in any case, we, uh, we moved down there. Uh, and uh, Kathy, we had two children at that time, uh, and uh, developed, uh, finished my, did my thesis research at the same time as, as building and creating this, uh, this program. Uh, very exciting, wonderfully enriching time with a multi, uh, you know, multicultural fact faculty, uh, terrific student. And uh, and where did you say it was based? It was based in Managua, Nicaragua. In Nicaragua, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So so that was a a very stimulating uh, period. Mm -hmm. Uh, And how long were you there for? Two years. Two years, okay. Two years. At the end of that period, uh, I was recruited back to Harvard to join the faculty at at Harvard. Uh, Kathy was deeply involved in in rural public health with a doctor, a Nicaraguan doctor down there. And so when she came back, she, in fact, pursued those interests and, and entered into the uh, graduate school at uh, the Harvard School of Public Public Health while I was teaching mm. at, uh, at uh, HBS. Mm. And just talking about Harvard Business School, it, it, it has such an amazing reputation. Can you just describe a little bit about the environment and what it's actually like? So it's it's been interesting because it's evolved over the over the years that I've been there first as a student and then on the faculty. Over the years, it's become increasingly international in terms of its student body. Mm. Uh, we probably have, I think, probably almost half of our students are, are outside of the U.S. Uh, it is uh, kind of one of the premier. Uh, business schools uh, in in the U.S. and in the world. Uh, it is distinctive uh, in 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 its pedagogy, as as mm. I had other schools uh, use the case method. Often cases uh, that were developed at Harvard and are made available uh, worldwide. Uh, it's a two-year program. The first year, and it's a large-scale program. We bring in about 900 students mm. uh, as an entering class uh, each year, uh, but they're divided into into sections. So you have like 10 sections of 90 students. And in the first year, they're all required courses. Every section takes the same courses, but you're doing it in these groups of 90 with faculty so you got nine faculty mm. for finance, nine faculty for marketing, nine faculty for production. You know, every 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 uh, subject matter has its own teaching group. Right. And uh, but you bond with those ninety students intensively. I mean, it's every day, all day long. You're interacting with them in the classroom. You're studying in study groups with them outside. Uh, and those are lifelong bonds, right? Not unlike what you had with the Peace Corps, right? Yes. Uh, and and so, it's it's a very special uh, learning environment, uh, in that sense. And then your second year, uh, 
it's elective courses. You, you know, you can specialize in one area versus another, and and uh, and it's really kind of free choice depending on on what your your uh, interests are. Uh, but you know, after two years, uh, you graduate, and and the degree of commitment, sense of bonding that the alumni have with the school mm. is absolutely amazing and, and critical. Mm. I mean, these are folks that go out that become leaders in the, uh, you know, in the management world and, uh, and great supporters, uh, donors to, to, the, to the business school. Mm. Uh, and so you are... It sounds like you can trace that back to that intense experience in Absolutely. the first without year, can't you? And without and like you say, that mirrors what you had in the Peace yeah, Corps. Without a doubt. Getting the people together and every day together, studying, yep. learning, yep. challenging, growing. Yep. Yeah. It's, and, and you grow together. And uh, and so there's a network also outside, uh, even after you graduate. Right. Uh, and you have alumni clubs around the world uh, uh, that uh, that foster the, that that. Mm. that uh, relationship mm-hmm. and and what area or what sector I guess did you end up spending most of your time in and educating in well you know that that's a, a for many faculty I think uh, not all but for many faculty it's evolutionary you start in an area and as you grow your interests mm-hmm. expand or there's something additional uh, some are just in one area and they stay throughout. Uh, I'm, I was more of the evolutionary uh, nature. So when I came back, I started in in sort of the agribusiness area uh, where I'd done my thesis on the modernization of the rice industry in Nicaragua, and we had a couple of agribusiness courses. In fact, the term was invented by the faculty member who was my mentor at the school, and... and uh, and so I taught in that area. I taught a little bit in marketing. Uh, and then up into that, about three years or so, I uh, colleagues over in the School of Public Health Nutrition Department had approached my, my mentor, Ray Goldberg, just a guru in the field of food systems, uh, and said, you know, we're being asked by lots of people about how to get policy advice and manage these nutrition feeding programs. We're scientists. We don't know anything about this. Can you help us out? Right. And he says, I've got just a guy for you. <laughs> <laughs> and so here was this, you know, assistant professor uh, who yeah. was interested in developing countries and helping people. And and so I said, sure, I'll go over there. And, and uh, so I have a joint appointment, if you will, part of the time of the business school, part of the time of the school of public health. Uh, which, you know, almost any other junior faculty or senior faculty would look at that and say, that's suicide. <laughs> From a career standpoint, splitting your time, doing these two things, I mean, what do you... But it was important to do. Right. It was a... It was an opportunity. <laughs> entrepreneurial opportunity. You could create something that was have an impact over here. And so I did that jointly, balanced that. Really meant you had two jobs, mm. two full-time jobs. Uh, but it was great. I loved it, and uh, and I, you know, got promoted to associate somehow, and and uh, and then continued on, and and uh, and then I also evolved into a, a kind of again, it was 
uh, it, was, it was another sort of required course on macro-political economy. So instead of looking at companies, you're looking at countries. Right. So it was a way to learn economy, macroeconomy, macroeconomics and, uh, and political science. And, and instead of being the president of a country, you'd have a case study on New Zealand mm. where your CEO, if you will, was the president of the country or mm. the minister of finance and dealing with some problem. Mm. And so it was a way to... And, and from my international standpoint, that was very appealing. And, and so I, I, I was part of that group for a while, headed that course for a while. But then uh, I and a few other folks sort of said, you know, if you look at our curriculum and our cases, 90% of them are U.S. or other developed countries. Right. What about the other 80% of the world, mm -hmm. developing countries? I mean, this is absurd. Mm. And so... I said, okay, if you think it's absurd, Austin, you know, do something about it. So I created a course on managing in developing countries. Uh, what's different about uh, managing and, and operating in those countries? And so I was back, if you will, once again in the realm of the Peace Corps. Right. Uh, I hear echoes throughout your life. <laughs> and yeah. so, and, And so that was very distinctive, and that yeah. kind of opened uh, – opened a door, if you will, within mm. the school. Mm. And there were folks subsequently, so that over time, you know, you would get developing country course cases and uh, in, in all of the courses. And so that was, uh, that, was a, that was a critical part. And then, and then the last uh, 10 or so years uh, is uh, when I entered into the social enterprise field, the one mm. that you are particularly interested in, Stephen. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and that's, was, that's really what's brought you, the reason that we're able to sit here and look each other in the eyes that you're here for the Social Enterprise World absolutely, Forum. Absolutely. And so I am curious about that yeah. word, that term. And, yeah. and yeah, so, so was it about 10 years ago or so? that? It, no, it was more than that. In fact, we are approaching the 25th anniversary of the forming uh, what we called and call in the Harvard Business School the Social Enterprise Initiative. Right. Uh, so back around the beginning of the 1990s, uh, there was kind of interest in, in, in having the business school focus on non-business, uh, non-profits, uh, other social purpose organizations, uh, good alumni support for having us do this. Mm. And the dean uh, of the school uh, asked a group of interested faculty uh, if they would take this area and explore it, see if it would be possible to do something meaningful there. And a right. colleague of mine, uh, Cash Rangan, uh, just had received tenure, and so Cash and, and I uh, assembled a group of uh, faculty also interested in the topic because there had been bubbling interest kind of sporadically by, by faculty on this area. Uh, and, and we sat down, and, and if you looked around the scene at that point in time, around 1991, 92, there were a few other U.S. universities that uh, had some nonprofit management programs. So Stanford had a little Center for Nonprofit Management, Case Western Reserve, Yale, uh, but when we sort of explored 
the world outside when we scanned it, we said, you know, the starting point should not be the organization of form. You know, your starting point, why are you doing this? You're doing this because you want to solve or help ameliorate some sort of social problem, societal problem. So that should be your starting point. So look at your problem, and then the secondary, the derivative question is, okay, which organizational form would be most effective in mobilizing and deploying the resources to have the greatest impact on that particular problem? Well, that was like opening up the umbrella right. under which you could have Nonprofit form, for-profit form, something in between, collaborations. And so it was out of that where, where we chose the, the term social enterprise. It was a term that had been floating around in the practice world for a while, uh, but not really in academia. Uh, and so we called it uh, the social enterprise initiative. And it, it really uh, then allowed us on the research side, on the teaching side, on the service side to, to really in, develop courses and explore uh, important uh, intellectual topics to, to sort of develop this, this in some ways more robust uh, approach to creating uh, social value economic value and environmental value simultaneously. Uh, and so uh, that was a, then became a process of how within a large academic institution mm -hmm. do you create change. So in effect, once again, it was sort of a form of, if you will, academic entrepreneurship. Mm. And, uh, and that's a process that you know, as I look back at that over the over these decades, uh, what happened at our school, as well as more largely in the in in the field in general, uh, you you sort of have a giving birth period, uh, and like and like any birth, it is uh, you know painful but exhilarating. Uh, and it's hard to get universities to make major changes. Mm. But universities have a high tolerance for experiments. So you want to fiddle around and do something? Sure, go ahead. You know, you're interested in this? You know, professors can do that. <laughs> and so they said, well, yeah, go ahead. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like the next stage is from the movie, you know, if you build it, will they come? Right. Uh, and so you start developing it, and you see, well, can we interest students? Can we get more faculty? Uh, will the alumni, you know, think this is sensible? Mm. And that we face, so, and in fact, the response was incredible. Right. I mean, students just loved it. This was a fantastic thing, and they were really attracted to it. And more and more faculty said, gee, you know, I could take my disciplinary 
thing that I've been applying just to companies and mm. maybe apply it to this and I'll learn something different, which happened, you know. Mm. So, whoa, that allowed me to see things differently. And mm. so you're creating new concepts and taking different techniques. And, and so all of a sudden publications start emerging and body of knowledge starts growing. Mm. And, and then you start having more and more courses because it's creative and the students demand it. And then the students say, this is terrific. And they start forming clubs, you know. And, and, and they've got new ideas and new ways of doing things. It and, is, and, and it, it must be fascinating to be involved in that right from the beginning as well, to see it grow. Because you're, you're, it is both challenging and difficult because you're a pioneer, mm-hmm. uh, but exciting, of course. You're simultaneously building a larger field mm. and so you know we did a lot of interaction with lots of other schools and because we were all trying to build the field together you mm. know everybody's gain is uh, you know uh, an individual's gain if you share it is everybody's gain and the whole field will rise and uh, uh, and that's exactly what what happened little by little you know and then more articles and all of a sudden People are pursuing this academically as a significant area of research, and whoa, mm. the journals are saying, that's very interesting. And then the professional associations are saying, well, yeah, let's create a forum for that. And then all of a sudden, you know, down the road, here we have Social Enterprise World Forum, and people are coming from all over the world because it's a real phenomena, uh, both within the academia, but it, more importantly, within within practice. and. Mm. Uh, so it's, well, what I like what, about what you're saying as well is you just try something and experiment and see where it goes. And, you know, you didn't know at the beginning what it would lead to or where it would go. But clearly now, 25 years later, you can look back and say that was worthwhile. It, it, it's, uh, it is an incremental process mm. that you're, uh, you're, you're gaining one student and one professor at a time, mm-hmm. and then it accumulates and accumulates and uh, uh, and, and and reaches critical mass mm. uh, finally. And uh, the discovery process is is uh, wonderful. Uh, you know, we started out with one set of courses, and then we had executive education programs, and so you're servicing and learning from the practitioners uh, and uh, doing research that all of a sudden finds new ways to conceptualize, and, and that pushes uh, both practice and academia uh, forward. So that, mm. that, that it is exciting in, mm. in, in, in that, in that mm. sense. Yeah, that's good. One of the things we talk about on this podcast is purpose, the word purpose. Mm. So I'm, I'm guessing the answer to this is yes, but do you feel like this career, this niche that you've carved out, is something that's been able to combine purpose with what you're doing? You know, the fundamental driver is one's values. And, uh, you know, somewhere back in the family, <laughs> there were some values that imprinted both Kathy and me, and that led us to the Peace Corps. And the Peace Corps, you know, solidified and strengthened a certain set of values. And if you look at almost anything that we've done along the way, at the core of it, it is I'm doing this because it's important to do Hmm. it's meaningful uh how can we do something that's going to generate benefit that goes far beyond us Hmm. uh 
and so that's the core driver. Yeah. That's the core driver. Yeah, I love it. I, lo- I like that a lot. And I know you were very kind to write something for the little book that I did and in your cover email to that. You, you said, were very entrepreneurial. I was very uh, entrepreneurial. In, yeah. in doing the book. It was a terrific addition. Yeah. And um, in the email, I think you said something like, it's great to see the, you know, the next generations coming along. Loved and, it. Yeah, and I think that's a. It, it must be nice to sit where you are now and and kind of see these young people coming up. So it's even it's it's even within the the institution. Mm. So we created, you know, I was a co-founder with other core set of faculty, uh, the program. But it, it's an effort that is created by by team work. Mm. Mm. And, you know, there is no I in team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the major challenges that Cash and I have had was, okay, how do we develop our successors? Mm. Because the real test of institutionalization is can you pass on the leadership? And so this mentoring uh, is, is just vital mm. uh, to building. So it's yeah. it's always a pleasure to see you know, the next set of hands and they do things that are absolutely fantastic. You know, <laughs> and you just celebrate them. I mean, I'll give you an example. We went the other evening to a faculty dinner. And so here I was a emeritus professor coming back in and going into the reception area. And one of the younger chaps came up to me and, and you know, I, he'd, he'd received tenure a little while ago, but he's a finance guy, but he really has a chunk of social enterprise that's critical to him on impact investing. And and uh, he says, Jim, let me tell you this. We've created, it's like on the side activity, mm. we've created this app and this program to help give technical assistance to farmers and in remote areas, you know, that they can't get the information they need and they have a question and they send it in to us and we provide the technical assistance. So it's wonderful to see it's not just an academic exercise. Mm. Uh, you know, this, these are committed, practical reality and there. committed people. Let's make a difference. Yeah. Let's make a real difference yeah. in the world. That's true. Well, that's definitely the attitude of people that I meet who the people who will probably be listening to this are going, yeah, that's right, we can make a difference. Go it, forward, all for you. <laughs> that's right. If people want to find out more about, I guess, that part of Harvard Business School and things, what would they look up or how would they find so out? So you go to the Harvard Business School and you simply look up Social Enterprise Initiative. And right. there you've got an abundance of information about the amazing things that we do, the courses, the uh, different kinds of publications, the services that they give to students, the work with alumni, uh, spotlights on alumni that are having an impact out mm. in the social enterprise world. So uh, mm. That's great. And just to, I guess, the, to end, just thinking back over your life and when you were just starting there, that you, you know, you'd just gotten married, you're going into the Peace Corps, would you have any advice for your younger self, having now been practicing and being involved in so many things? I don't know about the, the, the younger self that I would say, gee, you should have done this rather than that. You know, we all have our abundance of uh, mm. mistakes and errant paths that, uh, that we travel down. Uh, but, uh, you know, the journey has been quite satisfying. And so, uh, 
uh, I would say, good job, Jim and Kathy. You know, <laughs> you've done well. Uh, and then maybe on a much more personal note, uh, the other uh, week, uh, our children, our uh, three children and six grandchildren, had a birthday party for our 75th birthdays. Uh, and to our surprise and delight, uh, they said, okay, we're going to start with the 75 reasons why we love Grandpappy and Tata. <laughs> and they, each one was giving one versus another, and, you know, we just said, wow. <laughs> you know, we, Kathy and I looked at each other and said, you know, we've done all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in the end, you know, if you... If you have a loving family and uh, you see that values, uh, you know, have, have been passed on and mm. those are appreciated and uh, uh, that that, uh, that bond is great, well, maybe in the most important role that one has, uh, if you end up uh, getting that sort of right, uh, maybe that's the, the best bottom line. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been really a pleasure to talk with you. And just that connection with my own father, you know, I see echoes of his life in your life and, and just hearing about your journey, you know, the, that, the childhood and then going into the Peace Corps, but then how that really seems to have shaped your thinking and your approach in all that came afterwards. So A pleasure, a pleasure, Stephen, and uh, just wonderful to, and congratulations to uh, uh, Norm and Marion for having had an offspring that was indelibly imprinted with their values and who's doing great social enterprise work. Pleasure to be with you. Keep great. it up. Well, it's been lovely to have you. And um, now we can go enjoy the Social Enterprise World Forum, which starts in about an hour. Let's do it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with James. And as you could tell, it intersected with my own life history. So it was really special for me to be able to speak with him. Next week, we're going to be speaking with Elena Casolari, the co-founder and president of Opus Investment Fund, which is based in Italy. Here's an excerpt from the interview with her. So we need uh, every day to look at uh, uh, examples, good examples. And uh, otherwise, we can't think that what we do is just uh, a small drop in the ocean. And... Um, but if we see the multitude, uh, the really the many people who are doing things, uh, great things, uh, we feel really encouraged uh, to keep doing what we do. This has been the 12th episode that's been uploaded. So if you haven't checked out the earlier ones, maybe have a look at those. Until next time.